Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Miles Hickson. And today is a pretty monumental day for us here at the Sacramentalist Podcast because this is the first time that we've ever recorded a show uh, apart from each other other. We're doing this remotely today. So how are things in, uh, where are you, Tennessee right now, Father Miles? No, no, I'm in, I'm in Virginia. And uh, yeah, things are going well here. It's, I am gearing up. I will be going to Tennessee probably by the time this podcast is aired, I will be in Tennessee. So getting ready, moving, doing things like that. That's fun. Yes. And those of you who know my wife and I, we moved to Annapolis, Maryland here uh, within the past two weeks. Um, it's been pretty busy since we got up here. Sadly, the rector of our parish had a stroke on the Sunday before um, last Sunday before the service started. And so I've had to kind of step up a little bit there. So please keep him in your prayers. His name is Father Tom Burr. Um, so just pray for recovery uh, for him. So yes, as we work on this episode from a distance, we just ask you listeners to bear with us. There might be some sound uh, issues and kinks that we have to work out as we move forward, but we're dedicated to making this thing work, and so um, keep on keeping on. That's right. Yes. Yeah, we'll do. We'll make adjustments after we hear this episode of to, to make things sound better in the future. But uh, yeah, we're still experimenting and trying to figure it out, and it doesn't help that both of us are not technologically gifted. Um, not a bit. Yeah, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Father Miles' wife, Liz, uh, who's able to edit and, and do all the technology things that we need help with. That is right. So today on the show, we are going to talk about the uh, the very basic and simple issue of Paul and his soteriology, which is, of course, not controversial at all. Um, and uh, everybody always agrees on. So that'll be a really it'll be a really light and easy episode today, I believe. Insert sarcasm. <laughs> That's right. So um, why are we in the mess that we're in when we talk about Pauline studies? Um, if you've ever picked up you know, any book on the subject you probably have realized that there are a number of perspectives on Paul that have come about in the modern era. So why are we in the mess that we're in now? Why do so many people have different readings of Paul? Um, especially because, in theory, Pauline letters should be one of the easiest things to read, right? I mean, he's not using stories. He's not using parables or narratives. He's just telling you what he believes about things. But nevertheless, um, he is very hard to interpret. And so really this begins during the Reformation where Martin Luther decided to read Paul uh, through the lens of his own day. So he transposed a lot of his problems with Roman Catholicism onto the controversies that Paul was addressing in his letters. So, for example, to, to Luther, the Roman Catholic Church fell into the same trap that Judaism did, which was a kind of legalism, a kind of working your way to God. You know, um, And so if you just work a little harder, if you pay a little bit more indulgences, if you um, engage in more self-flagellation, um, if you pray X number of Hail Marys and Y number of Our Fathers, etc., then you could get closer to God, just like the Judaizers in Galatia were telling the um, Christians there that if you just keep the law of Moses, then, then you'll be closer to God. 
Um, and so Paul is obviously adamantly against what the Judaizers are trying to do in Galatia. And so therefore, he must also be very much against what the Roman Catholics were trying to do um, during the medieval period. You think that's an accurate summary of uh, Luther's teaching there, Father Miles? Yeah, I think so. I think that it's, it's, it's not too much of a stretch to say that Luther being frustrated with his cultural milieu, his theological surroundings of the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, went into Scripture with that burden and found answers that now a lot of modern-day scholars will say he imposed issues and answers in the text rather than actually deriving them from Scripture. So ironically, he's, he, he's taking his culture and he's not actually interpreting sola scriptura, Scripture alone. He's not using that innate context of what Paul would actually talk about. And so I know you'll get into this, but this is kind of the modern critique. This is the mess, is, is what Luther said, uh, the right approach. And then, and then Rome responds, but Rome kind of, they're all operating in a similar hermeneutical fashion of looking at this as kind of an objective text outside of themselves and not not their they don't think they're adding their culture whereas modern day scholars will say no you are adding your culture and we have to actually if we're going to add a culture which you have to you have to add a culture we need to go back to first century Judaism that culture Exactly. Yeah, I've often heard the problem kind of described as as Luther foisting 16th century questions onto a first century text. And so, yeah, so you develop a a number of problems. And and the thing that really got what we call the new perspective on Paul rolling, which is what you're talking about, Father, this idea that we need to maybe look at Paul from within the context of first century Judaism— so the thing that really got this new perspective rolling was a, a man named Christer Stendhal who argued that the Lutheran understanding was an anachronistic exercise, an introspection that isn't so much Pauline as it is an Augustinian notion. So uh, Augustine you know, converts to Christianity a couple hundred years after Paul, um, and, and he has a lot of problems. Um, with angst and he he's wondering you know how can I be saved and so uh, Paul he kind of imposes this existential crisis onto the Pauline text at least this is what Stendhal argues um, and so then Luther and really the whole of Western Christendom to Stendhal picks up on what Augustine was laying down there and adopts it and internalizes it so that when we approach Paul, we all kind of do this without even thinking about it. So that was Stendhal's contribution. He, he starts to chip away at the traditional Western understanding of um, Paul. And then in 1977, E.P. Sanders published Paul and Palestinian Judaism, which really marked a shift away from the Lutheran understanding of Judaism as it had been commonly held. So his arguments were that Jews believed that God elected Israel freely, not on the basis of Israel keeping the law. So if you think about that, that sounds a lot like what the church says about the church, you know, that we have, it's not about whether we keep all of the laws, but rather through grace, we're elected by God. And so um, Sanders is arguing that Israel had a functionally similar understanding here. So effectively, Sanders transposed what we now call sola gratia back onto Judaism. So Judaism operated with, um, from a perspective of God's gratuitous grace being poured out to, um, to his people. And this is just very backwards from what, at least I know I was raised and most of my friends who were raised in the church, Catholic, Protestant like, is this notion that Old Testament Judaism is, is 
a legalistic religion, that the Pharisees are legalistic. And so what does the New Testament, what does the New Covenant bring? It's grace, grace versus law, grace versus law. Um, and so what this is starting to do, E.P. Sanders with this book, and this is beginning kind of the new perspective, it is starting to turn that on its head. It is starting to say, actually, not only Old Testament Judaism, Old Testament Yahwehism, we'll call it, and New Testament Judaism, but but also New Testament Judaism, neither of them are really this, you must earn your salvation. And so you can start to see if that's true, then Luther's reading of what's going on in, in Galatians and Romans, well, if that's not what anyone believes, then that can't be what Paul's talking about when he says, you know, you're justified by faith. He must be kind of, it's not faith against works, it's faith against something, and we'll get to that. Yes, exactly. So you might describe what Sanders is arguing here is that the law didn't function on the front end of God's relationship with Israel. The front end of God's relationship with Israel was his movements in saving Israel. It was bringing them through the exodus, um, you know, making them a nation, that, that kind of thing. So his argument would be the law's importance is more on the back end, that the law is the response of the Jewish people to God's salvific works. And so this is a concept called covenantal nomism, which Sanders defines as the view that one's place in God's plan is established on the basis of the covenant and that the covenant requires as the proper response of man his obedience to its commandments while providing means of atonement for transgressions. So you see here there's a kind of um, God is the first mover. Israel responds by keeping the law. Um, and actually, you can find a very similar articulation of how covenant works in covenant theology. So I'm thinking like Norman Shepard's book, The Call of Grace, um, where he makes this argument that all covenants in Scripture have this kind of promise and obligation component to them. And the obligation is not works of the law so much as it is faithful obedience. This is what active faith looks like, is to live in this way. This is probably a good place to kind of plug in that one of these major word studies connected with this new perspective is is this Old Testament word in Hebrew, chesed, which means we often your Bibles in English will translate it as loving kindness or just love. And you get this sense that it's, oh, it's just kind of a mushy, gushy, overwhelming kindness, giving yourself for the other, maybe an, maybe an equivalent to what many in pop culture say is agape love. But that's not really what the Old Testament chesed means. It means covenant faithfulness. And so you see that this is what Yahweh is constantly calling Israel to, chesed, chesed, chesed. It's covenant faithfulness. And so the covenant faithfulness comes after the establishment of the covenant. You have to have a covenant before you can be faithful to it. And why is God so um, so worthy of praise? He is perfectly full of chesed. He is always faithful to the covenant he establishes. Exactly. And the scholarly consensus is that Sanders is pretty much right regarding his overturning of past caricatures and that covenantal nomism is a solid way to describe Judaism in the first century, at least, the way that Paul would have thought about Judaism. So after Sanders, James Dunn came along a few years later and, um, and used Sanders' work to really place Paul back in his Jewish context. So this changes the way that Dunn reads um, verses like Galatians 2, 15 through 16, where Paul says, We ourselves, who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners— Yet who know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, 
even we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law shall no one be justified. So in Dunn's book, Jesus, Paul, and the Law, he argues that this reshapes our understanding of justification from this kind of, you know, it's only grace, it's no, there's no works, and, and obviously that's in contrast to the Jewish perspective. Right. So, so by works, you're meaning, as is common in, in kind of the Protestant Catholic dialogue, any physical action that I do. Right. Because Paul obviously just said works. So what does he mean? Yes. And so, so what Sanders is doing is reshaping his understanding of justification to accommodate this kind of redefinition to God's recognition of Israel as his people, his verdict in favor of Israel on grounds of his covenant with Israel. And that was done, not Sanders. Did I say Sanders? You did. Oh, sorry. Yes, that's James Dunn. Um, only and, human. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so anyway, so here the idea of justification is not to be pronounced righteous through a an alien righteousness the way that maybe Luther would have explained it, but rather to be counted among God's covenantal people. And you'll see this with N.T. Wright in particular, who will kind of use justification as being a member of God's family, you know, being declared a member of God's family anyways. So basically, uh, up until now, according to Dunn, Paul and the Jews of his day are all agreed on the idea of salvation being through God's grace. So the Judaizers would have agreed with that. The Pharisees would have agreed with that. Paul as a Christian would have agreed with that. So then it naturally raises the question, where do they disagree? And it's on this concept of works of the law, which Dunn says isn't so much works righteousness, the way that Luther would have understood it as you have to do all these things in order to become saved. That's not what Paul's arguing against, according to Dunn. What Paul is arguing against is ethnocentric identity markers, such as dietary restrictions, circumcision, and keeping the Sabbath. So justification isn't tied to your ethnicity, but because Christ breaks down the barriers between Jew and Gentile, it's available to all through faith. And I think one place that was powerful for me to see this, when we get to the end of the podcast, we'll say what we actually think about new perspective, old perspective, whatever you want to call it, where we kind of fall on the spectrum. But this, I, this was shown to me, and I thought this was pretty powerful. I'm in Romans chapter 3. And this is the famous passage of we're justified by faith. And so starting in verse 27, Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So he's saying you can't boast about your works, right? I mean, this is my normal reading. Oh, yeah, you can't boast about your good works because you've been saved by faith. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith, and this is where Luther famously inserted alone, faith alone, but it just says, we, we, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Boom, you're saved by faith, not by works. Now, you would think in the Lutheran understanding, he, if, if Paul is contrasting your physical effort to save yourself versus, you know, simple mere belief in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the next verse would say something to the effect of, Therefore, rest in Jesus. Therefore, don't hold up your works as badge of honor. Don't, you know, something about denigrating your good works and not kind of more boasting in them. But instead, what does Paul say? Right after he says, we are justified by faith apart from works of the law, he says this, or is God the God of the Jews only? That doesn't make any sense if he's talking about faith and works, but it does make sense 
if in his scheme he's contrasting faith in Jesus Christ with works of the law, circumcision, Torah obedience, kosher eating. He goes on to say, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Paul's point here is not don't do good works or good works are bad. The point here is that God has expanded his family and Gentiles are justified. They enter God's family, the covenant of Israel, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's right. Yeah, you you don't have to be Jewish in order to be Christian is kind of what he's arguing here. To be in God's family is not to belong to an ethnic family, which also makes sense of what he does elsewhere with the descendants of Abraham. So Romans 9, um, he kind of redefines descendants of Abraham from biological descendants to those who have faith. Galatians 3, he does the same thing. 3.29, the promises of Abraham aren't for an ethnic group of people, but rather for people who have faith and therefore are Abraham's descendants. Um, so really, the if you had to summarize uh, a lot of the new perspectives argument, it's that Paul is interested in a kind of racial reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about critiques of the new perspective. But uh, for now, one other big name that, that in the new perspective movement, and, and really he's done a lot of work as a popularizer of this view, but also as just a, a Pauline scholar in general, is Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright. And he's done a really solid job of putting uh, the new perspective within the context of salvation history. So that's kind of his mission is to to show us how this all fits together on the on the larger level of things. Um, so one book that's helpful if you're interested in learning a little bit more about the new perspective is Kent L. Yinger's book, New Perspective on Paul, an Introduction. And so he lists the main kind of lines of the new perspective as follows. So this is a good way to summarize, I think, what we've talked about up till now. First century Judaism was not legalistic but was characterized by covenantal nomism, that is, that they were saved by God's grace and obligated to follow his ways. Second, since Jews were not espousing works righteousness, Paul was not opposing legalism per se in his letters. Third, instead at issue was a question of social identity. Who belongs to the people of God and how is this known? i.e., does one have to be Jewish, be circumcised, keep food laws, celebrate Sabbath, etc., in order to inherit the promises of Abraham? And finally, Paul does not differ from most other Jews as to the roles of grace, faith, and works in salvation. Where he differs is the conviction that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and the Lord of all creation. No longer is Torah the defining center of God's dealings. What counts now is belonging to Christ. Okay, so those are the main tenets of the new perspective on Paul when we talk about that. So let's talk. Oh, go ahead, Father Miles. And so I think one thing I, I grab from this is that Paul does not see himself as creating a new religion. He's not, he's not flushing Judaism down the toilet, as it were. Christianity is not this radical break from Judaism. It is the fulfillment through the Messiah. This is, the, this is how Judaism is now coming to its own. This is God's next step in the great drama of redemption. That's Paul's main argument, not stop trying to save yourself. Yeah, I think that's fair. And so then uh, one of the things that this gets into a little bit, and Father Miles, I'm sure you have some thoughts on, on some of these words, um, is in the Reformation you have a, a back and forth between Protestantism and Rome on this idea of justification. 
And we've talked a little bit about this in past episodes, but Luther was arguing for something called imputation, which is that when one has faith, God imputes righteousness onto that person, which basically means that he declares them righteous through the merits of Christ. But that doesn't really mean anything changes about the person because this is an alien kind of covering being placed over them, right? So um, this is Luther's famous metaphor of the dunghill being covered by snow. Um, you know, so you can't really see it anymore because God sees Jesus now instead of seeing your sin. Um, and of course, the Catholic Church had some problems with that because they, I think, perceived that as somewhat antinomian. So you could, uh, you could take this declaration of being made righteous and then you could go out and do whatever you want and it doesn't really matter because when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sins. He only sees Jesus covering your sins. So what's to stop you? So Roman Catholics preferred the term impartation or, or infusion. infusion. Yes, yeah. infusion, yeah. So this idea that God actually gives you what's almost like a seed of righteousness uh, when you are baptized. And then as you grow through good works and um, and living the Christian life and participating in the sacraments, that righteousness then begins to sprout and grow into what hopefully becomes, you know, really beautiful and large tree at some point. Um, the idea of infusion, I mean, I always think of when I drink tea and I have a tea infuser. And so you begin when you drop the infuser into the water and there's a little bit of tea that seeps out, and then if you wait a few more minutes, more tea keeps seeping out and seeping out and seeping out until, you know, maybe four or five minutes into it when all of the tea has been absorbed into the water. And so then the the water has become something else. It's become a, a tea. Mm. And so that's kind of what the Catholic view was in – well, it was that view in before Luther, but also in response to Luther as well. So what are your thoughts on those, Father Miles? If somebody had a gun to your head and you had to pick imputation or impartation, what would you choose? Oh, I would, I would choose neither. <laughs> I don't know if that means I get shot. but I. So here's the thing is that, like we were just saying, I think that these medieval debates – we're, we're getting at theological concepts that are important, but they're maybe not resting as firmly on the witness of Scripture. Like, I don't think Paul would have in his mind a concept of imputation, infusion. I think he would probably uh, have something of a little bit of both. So the thing with the imputation is, yeah, it can lead to this antinomian idea, which, of course, Luther and all the reformers repudiated. They didn't like that idea. Uh, in the infusion idea, the problem that you see there is that justification is never seemed to be presented as a process in Scripture. Justification is kind of a you're in, you're out, because now it's something you might maintain or keep, but it's not, you don't grow in justification. It's a declaration type idea. And so where this gets difficult is what is righteousness? And I think righteousness in the New Testament, dikaiosune in Greek, is connecting back with that chesed word in the Old Testament. So it's covenant faithfulness. Those who keep covenant faithfulness are declared in the right. We often, I think maybe many in the Protestant world, think of righteousness kind of solely in terms of good works. This is the heritage we have, our theological heritage of righteousness is good works. And so what is imputation? Jesus perfectly did all the good works. He fulfilled the law, and that's given to us as a gift during our salvation. Uh, and then the Catholic view would say, well, 
you are justified because you're infused with grace and you grow in good works. Well, if it's kind of fulfillment of the covenant, and this would be N.T. Wright's argument, that's not really something that can be imputed to you. It's something declared to you because of your faith in Jesus Christ, but it belongs to you. You, you can't share it. And so I think maybe a better way for us to think about this, and E.L. Mascal, who we quote all the time, he goes this route. He uses the phrase incorporation. So not imputation, not infusion, but incorporation. That it's a more organic understanding that we have been united to Jesus Christ. We participate in Jesus. And so, of course, there's the, the marriage. The two have become one flesh idea. So yeah, his righteousness, his fulfillment of the law, these sorts of things are not necessarily given to us, but they are ours because we're in Christ. But also the Holy Spirit is given. We are, we are united to him to the point where, yes, holiness, a conformity to the image of Christ takes place. Exactly. And in fact, there's a line in Mascal's chapter on Christ the Christian in the church about incorporation where he says, kind of, well, we have this debate between Protestants and Catholics about imputation versus impartation, but really it's kind of an easy solution because what God imputes, he also imparts. So there you go. Mascal, uh, Mascal clears it all up for us. That is that that there is a sense in which we're declared righteous. Um, the person who enters into the church is not who they should be in a final sense, right? They still have to be what we call the process of sanctification. So they need to become what they've been pronounced. And so that's the work of the Holy Spirit then to come into the life of the Christian and to conform them to the image of Christ. Right. And so for us in an Anglican sacramental tradition, justification then is tied really intimately to our baptism. Baptism is that moment that we enter into the covenant community. Baptism is that moment where we are declared, you are my beloved son and, or daughter and with whom I'm well pleased. And then what happens? Well, you have to grow into your baptism. And so I think this is interesting. You know, Eastern Orthodoxy never mentions justification language. It's interesting. They, they've really uh, avoided that terminology. So a Protestant or even a Catholic talking to an Eastern Orthodox Christian it's sometimes it, they talk past each other because they don't have these categories. But there's one place in the Orthodox liturgy where the word justification shows up. And it's after they baptize a child, behold the illumine, behold the justified, and then they move on. So they very explicitly connect it to a, a moment. It is a one-time moment thing, not a process, so to speak. It is a moment of declaration in your baptism. A sacramental declaration, and I would I would say yes, I agree to that. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So zooming out to the new perspective as a whole, let's talk a little bit about some of the pros and cons of these of this um, movement within scholarship. So some of the pros. I mean, first, I think that um, it's important to remember that Paul has an historical context, and that his discussion of salvation is occurring within that context. So we can say the inclusion of Gentiles is the occasion which typically provokes his discussion on these topics. So for us to discuss justification without talking about how Jews and Gentiles were supposed to fit into the church is for us to really run with what Paul says out of context. So bringing it into context is super important. Yeah, I think for me the pros of the new perspective are the emphasis on covenantal belonging 
kind of what you just said, this, this, this idea that really throughout the Old Testament, there's a big question of who's in and who's out. Uh, it really helps you make sense of works of the law as being covenant markers and not just any good works. And so what that does is when you see Paul really denigrate works of the law, it's not a viable option for justification. Well, if he's really just talking about these Jewish markers, not that I, We'll get to this. I actually, I don't think this this opens the door to say that Paul believes you can save yourself through good works. Not at all. But it does open the door for Paul. Actually, has a lot of good things to say about Christians doing good works and how important they are to the Christian life. And so sometimes I think reading Paul with a super traditional understanding of of uh, of these matters, you come away with maybe Paul being a bit schizophrenic, a bit split in his thought on at one time he denigrates works of the law then at the other time he'll say things about we're judged by our good works well what is it paul do we do good works or do we not like which what's what's going on here whereas kind of this understanding wraps that package up more nicely in my mind i heard a great story in um it's in stephen westerholm's book justification reconsidered where uh he uh he says there's a catholic who dies and goes to heaven and uh, St. Peter's waiting at the gates and says, uh, well, son, what was your major sin? And the Catholic says, well, I, I stopped attending Mass. I didn't go to Mass for years. St. Peter says, okay, well, you know, that's all, that's all right. We'll let you in. Um, and so the guy gets to go to heaven. And then a Baptist uh, goes up to heaven, and St. Peter says, well, what was your big sin? And he said, well, I committed adultery. And St. Peter says, well, we're, we're pretty forgiving up here, so we'll let you in. And, uh, and then a Lutheran is up next, and St. Peter says, what was your big sin? And the Lutheran says, well, I did do that good work that one time. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that is the caricature, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, we have to be careful. And it also helps, I think, to piggyback on what you just said, Father, understanding that Paul's not against good works helps, helps us harmonize Paul with the rest of the New Testament. So, for example, at our parish, we're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount right now. Well, Jesus says a lot about praxis in the Sermon on the Mount, right? I mean, and and makes it very stark, right? If you don't do these things, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, wow, what do we do with that in light of what Paul says in you know Galatians about works? Uh, and so this this helps us kind of synthesize all those things and see how really the New Testament is pretty harmonious here. Now, not everything about the new perspective is is all good all the time. So there are some critiques that are important, I think, for us to, to leverage here and so that we might understand a little bit more um, about Paul and, and how we ought to understand him as the church. So the risk, I think one of the major risks, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, um, is that in, in an attempt to find the historical Paul, we end up recreating him in our own image the same way that historical Jesus scholars did with Jesus. So culturally, we're really preoccupied with the idea of inclusion. And again, there are, I think, legitimate biblical principles that support some form of inclusion. So it makes sense why we would want to emphasize where Paul's concerns parallel our own. The issue is that if we don't check our biases at the door, we risk overemphasizing one facet of Paul's writing at the expense of other necessary aspects i.e., according to Stephen Westerholm, how can sinners find a gracious God? You know, that is a question that Paul actually does answer. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but if we only emphasize the idea of 
covenant inclusion and social identity, um, which, again, are prevalent in Paul and important. But if we only emphasize those things, we might end up losing that kind of, um, I guess, existentialist, you know, Augustinian um, quest. Yes. Yeah. So I think that maybe then exactly what you're saying, piggybacking, the downside to the new perspective can be we never allow Paul, who wrote Holy Scripture, to become something timeless, to escape his context for all time and all people. Uh, and so no, I'm not trying to say we, you need to, obviously, I, I kind of fall into a lot of the new perspective thinking. So I think the first century context is really important. But at the same time, Paul, at the end of the day, Paul and his theology is something that is beyond his first century context. And when you start thinking in those theological categories, I think you actually can end up in one of these more traditional theological understandings of faith and works, right? I don't think the new perspective ever says faith and works dichotomy is false and that you should, um, you should no, we should try to save ourselves by works. No one actually says that what they're, but the only way you get to that in Paul is by allowing Paul to speak beyond his historical context. Yeah, no, I think you're totally, I think you're totally right. There is a, and this is the same thing with Jesus. We've talked about it before, um, I think during the Andy Stanley episode where I recommended Paul Zoll's book, The First Christian. Um, and so his argument there is Jesus really was disjunctive in in many ways um, to what people expected at the time. And I think you can make the same argument that Paul was as well. It's just a question of whether we're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable or not. Another kind of thing that we should be careful with about the new perspective is that I think like we said earlier, it really does us a service by getting us away from some of the more absurd caricatures of Judaism that especially were promulgated by Luther, that it's just pure legalism. And if you understand kind of his, that he had a skewed understanding of Judaism, some of his more anti-Semitic writing, I, I don't want to say makes sense, but you can kind of understand why he would feel so strongly against Judaism if you kind of understand where he's coming from there. But but we have to understand he has a wrong view of Judaism there. Um, right. And so, Paul, I, I think we have to be careful, though, that we don't make Judaism and Christianity functionally the same thing because they still are different. So Westerholm rightly concludes that Paul's depiction of humanity's condition required a much more rigorous dependence on divine grace than did Judaism's, right? So Judaism doesn't have the concept of original sin that Christianity does. And, you know, Romans 1 through 3, I think, pretty clearly affirms it. And, you know, Romans 1 through 3 is another one of those places where Paul is rather disjunctive, right? A Jew listening to that would be offended because Paul's saying you've got all these benefits, but they don't actually get you where you need to go. The only thing that gets you there is Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. So because Christianity has the cross, it supplants Jewish views of the law's sufficiency, pointing to something else, namely the sacrifice of Christ. So without that, you know, Paul's writing doesn't make much sense, I don't, I don't think. And then finally, I think the traditional Christian understanding of faith and I would point to Augustine and Luther being two of the kind of prime examples of this, is still persuasive. You know, I think we can still look at Luther and we can still look at Augustine and say they get a lot right, even if we disagree with some of the nuances of what first century Judaism looked like. Um, human beings of all stripes are culpable before God, and God declares righteous anyone 
Jew or Gentile, who believes. And I think right. those are the basic messages of Augustine and Luther, and I think that's the basic message of Paul. So where do we where do we stand? What do we think about the new perspective and the Lutheran perspective on Paul? Um, I sort of tend to think that a permutation of the two major views is necessary, that we need both. I agree with a good amount of Luther's point that justification occurs when one is declared righteous on the basis of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for us. That said... I think it's important for us to remember that Paul's theology of justification is enmeshed in a particular cultural context of Jew and Gentile relations. He's trying to figure out how we can all be one family of God. So I see this as a spectrum of universals versus particulars, right? So the new perspective wants to draw out the social particulars of Paul's writing on justification, while the Lutheran approach wants to emphasize the universal problem that we all have, whether we're Jews or Gentiles. And I think that both of those things are really important when we remember him. So I think we should come down somewhere in the middle there. We have to read scripture in its historical context. We also have to read it as speaking to our universal problems. Yeah. And I mean, you said exactly what I was going to say. I think it's more of a matter of kind of logical order. You start with the historical situation, you work out there, but these historical situations and discussions then speak beyond themselves to the universals, as you put them, particulars versus universals. And so, yeah, I think that you end up, though, uh, you know, we might critique some of Luther's ideas or Rome's ideas or the Reformed, they have kind of a different view of justification too. I think you can end up in a theological discussion with the new perspective kind of being the the groundwork, so to speak, you start there, you move on to a theological discussion, then you move on to today. How do you preach this? I think that's a question. And I, I've found that the new perspective, I would never get up and have this conversation in the pulpit, but it preaches well about identity and reconciliation and inclusion, which are, like you said, big topics, but they're big topics, not just for Jews and Gentiles back then. They're big topics every single day every single culture, not just in our hot political climate, but at all times. There's questions of who's in, who's out, how do we all get along at the table? Yeah, and we all have a, have a desire to belong that I think makes the new perspective somewhat powerful in, in the sense that it, you know, here is this community of, of the faith and, and here's what it means to be a part of that. Um, that. And it's able to kind of answer those questions really well. And I think it's also important, I should add too, um, that the new perspective can be a corrective in places. So like we talked about with the justification debate, whether it's imputation or impartation, you know, this idea that both of those concepts as they've been historically articulated have some shortcomings. And so the new perspective gives us an ability to, um, to add a little bit more to the discussion that might balance out some of the problems that we've had, um, which I think is I think is helpful moving forward. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, from what I've seen is that the new perspectives, especially by N.T. Wright, as you said earlier, making it popular, man, a lot of people have responded so negatively as if like the very gospel itself was on stake because of these various, uh, because this quote unquote new perspective the great argument from N.T. Wright is this isn't new. This is actually the old perspective. This yeah. is what Paul was originally talking about. But I, I think that we should approach all this charitable. It's theology. It's study. It's scholarship. We're all on the same side. This isn't an us versus them thing. And especially now, I think we're at a place in history 
X number of years after the fact. I mean, Sanders wrote his book in 77, where we're starting to see synthesis and integration of the various views that makes sense. So always when you have new concepts, the pendulum will swing and then the other side gets demonized or the new side is demonized from the old guard. Now we're seeing synthesis. So I was even uh, encouraged, it was about a year ago, I was reading a commentary. Uh, it was written by, by a staunch Missouri Synod Lutheran and it's on Galatians. I mean, gosh, this is, this is it. This is the epitome of the New Testament, right? And I was pleasantly surprised this, to see that he was actually quite new perspective while holding to his, his uh, confessional Lutheran convictions. So these things are not as, bipo- as uh, what's the word I'm looking for? These things are not as dichotomized as possible, as, as they could be, as they've often been presented. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now it comes to the point of the show where we talk about what it is that we are into. Uh, so Father Miles, what are you into these days? Honestly, I haven't had time to be into much of anything because we've been packing and moving and doing stuff. But there is one thing. I mean, I've been reading this book and it is called Bible Basics for Catholics. It was given to me by an Anglican priest and it is by Catholics here. It does mean Roman Catholics. Uh, it is a very simple, basic overview of scripture and it fits in well with our conversation today because it is... It's all about the covenants in Scripture and how the covenants, God's gracious initiation and covenant, carries the story along. And so this is a book, sorry, I didn't say the author. It's John Bergsma. John Bergsma, he's a teacher at, uh, I think, Franciscan University, Steubenville, there with Scott Hahn. So the Anglican priest who gave this to me said he uses this as kind of catechesis material. It's so just basically Christian and not overwhelmingly Roman Catholic that he can do that. I think I can count on my hand like, you know, just five or six times where very explicit Roman Catholic things are in the book. But the thing is, is that if you want to teach people what the Bible is, kind of the meta narrative view, it's hard to do that as an Anglican with materials out there, because if you grab kind of the good Presbyterian Protestant stuff, it never gets to the sacraments. And the sacraments and the liturgy are a huge part of the biblical narrative. And then a lot of the Roman Catholic stuff, I mean, from page one, God created Adam. Oh, by the way, the Pope. And so it's just, it's hard to find a middle ground. And this book seems to be the best I've ever seen. That's excellent. I'll have to add that to the parish library. Uh, Something I've been into lately has been uh, baseball. So I, growing up, played baseball for like 10 years. Um, I liked baseball a lot in the 90s when everybody was on steroids. Mark McGuire and Sandy Sosa and all those home run races and stuff. That was really fun. Um, And then I stopped caring about baseball for a long time. I guess I've always been sort of a Chicago Cubs and Boston Red Sox fans because I think I pick my sports teams based on the fact that I hate myself. So I I picked them (laughs) in the 90s um, when they were both cursed. But... Moving up to Annapolis, Maryland, we're close enough to Baltimore. We're only about 40 minutes away. So I got to go to my first Major League Baseball game a couple weeks ago with our senior warden. Her and her husband have a like a ticket package that they get to go to 13 games a year or something like that. So they took me to the game. Uh, we lost to the Houston Astros 23-2. to um, at one point, the, at one point, the center fielder came in and pitched because they had gone through so many pitchers. Um, 
he was throwing it so slow you could watch the ball leave his hand travel to the catcher but it would he got a couple strikeouts and because they didn't know how to respond it was so slow they couldn't hit it (laughs) (laughs) isn't that some irony yeah yeah yeah. in fact he he had come in and gotten a save earlier in the season um he did the same thing got a save and baseball hall of fame got his glove and cleats and jersey because this was the first time that a position player had done that so so anyways we lost 23 to 2 but it was a blast to go to the game i had so much fun um there's a lot to do the food is amazing you know it's just a it was a beautiful night um the stadium is right there in the in a beautiful part of baltimore you can see the um city from where you're sitting and it's just really fun so i've decided to become an orioles fan so pray for me um because i'll need it because they are horrible but um, but yeah. So yeah, baseball, I, baseball is what I'm into. Baseball, and this might offend some people out there. Might offend you. Baseball is the worst sport ever invented by mankind. I, I don't think that. I do not enjoy this sport. But God bless you for liking it. They say it's America's pastime. I guess I'm just not an American. Anything without a time clock makes me nervous. They and do so, have a time clock now. Well, that shows you how much I pay attention to this sport. Just the fact they, that it can go on forever and ever. I'm like, come on, let's let's. I got things to do. Yeah, it can be long. It's hard to watch a whole baseball game on TV for sure. But being in the stadium and it's even stands, worse. It's even oh, worse because it's hot. More the sun's on you. That the food's expensive and it's cheap. Anyway, we're gonna have we'll to go to a we'll night a, game. We're gonna have to have a whole episode on baseball, the merits of baseball versus the merits of salvation. Here yes, David Bentley Hart has written a wonderful article on baseball and first things. Uh, so anyway, so if you want to, if you want to be players go to heaven. <laughs> if you want to be converted to the true way to think about baseball, go read that article. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you like what we're doing, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and share us with your friends. You can also email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalists at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Father Miles, would you give us a blessing? Absolutely. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.